Open your Bible, if you would, to Romans chapter, one, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Christianity is a person, church. Christianity is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is a life. It's his life lived in those who have trusted in him as Savior and Lord. This life must be lived in this world, and therefore it is a practical thing that which concerns the 24 hours in a day, 60 minutes in an hour, and 60 seconds in each minute of our lives. The last five chapters in Romans chapters 12 through 16 are concerned with the living of this life by the individual Christian in the very sphere of life of which God has placed him or her. If we are not to be led astray, we must have our foundations well established. And the life that the Christian life is, is to live here on earth. It's dependent upon uh, Christ living in us, and Christ's life within us comes through the great redemption which God has provided for us in Christ's death upon the cross. Now, I have always heard that Paul's therefores are therefore a purpose, and certainly it is used here as a hinge to go back to previous truths that he's talked about. But this, therefore, could very well be one of the most important therefores in the Bible. It would be impossible to understand the meaning of the ethical uh, passages which form the close of this epistle without building them on the chapters which precede this great call to holy living. Romans, uh, we go back to Romans chapter 2. When he says, therefore, in 12, he's talking about the previous chapters and verses before that, you go back to Romans chapter 2 and verse 1, we find another therefore. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourselves. For you who judge practice the same things. So the therefore that opens up the second chapter of Romans here goes back to a few verses. We see all the way back in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, which describe the terrible sinfulness and the depravity of man. We skip up to Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have a peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The therefore, which opens the fifth chapter of Romans, builds on the 36 verses which go before which are Romans 3.20 to 4.25, in which the inspired writer presents the doctrine of justification by faith apart from the works of the law. But the therefore in our text is in this study builds on the truth that has been presented in the 315 verses of the first 11 chapters of Romans. And without this solid foundation, the ethics of the end chapters, chapters 12 through 16, float in the sky like a roof without any support. And with this foundation, 
The life that is demanded from those who believed in Christ is seen to be the logical development of the work of redemption. So we look here, the therefore in Romans 12, 1, must look back over the entire epistle and divide its revelation under two headings. One, man's complete ruin in sin. And two, God's perfect remedy in Christ. Sin and salvation. This is the burden and the joy of the gospel. And this is the foundation for the practical day-to-day Christian life. The first two and a half chapters of epistles uh, to the Romans present the darkest picture that is to be found in any literature, ancient or modern. There are no other pages which so penetrate the depths of human heart and show man's sinfulness as much. I read a story that when a Hindu first read uh, these early chapters of Romans, he nodded his head and said, the writer of this pamphlet lived in India. Apparently he had been to India and saw the sinfulness of mankind there. Well, Paul did not live in India. But the Apostle Paul knew that the heart of the universal man was deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. He knew that the nature of man was a bottomless pit of sinful horror. And with technology of man's wisdom, there has been a great advance in the study of the human mind and the human heart. Sigmund Freud was born in May 6, 1856 and died September 23, 1939. Now Freud and his followers has vastly enlarged the knowledge of what makes men tick. Sigmund Freud was an Austrian neurologist and the founder of psychoanalysis, a clinic method of evaluating and treating pathologies explained as originating in conflicts in the psyche through dialogue between a patient and a psychoanalyst. Yet their study is tremendously lacking because they do not go back far enough to the very root of what is wrong with mankind. If only they had put Bible truths into their theories, the whole psychological psychiatry would be infinitely advanced. The epistle to the Romans is far more uh, mightier than any of the scholars put together. We know Isaiah 55 verses 8 through 9 says, For my thought are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. If only men would understand that this means, for example, that the epistles to the Romans is so much higher than psychology and psychiatry, a psychiatrist may be able to give a sedative that will deaden the pain of living while a man goes on in his sinful way. But only Christ can bring the cure of that sinful way. In the first chapter of Romans, the Holy Spirit charts the course of fleeing man, showing that he departed from God in a horrible, horrible decline which brought him down even below the level of the beasts. Man began high with God. He was originally created in the image of God, Genesis 1.27. That image was crushed beyond recognition and lost in the sin of Adam 
Adam did not beget sons and daughters in the image of God, but in his own image, sinful fallen image and likeness. And that's what we were born into. Even in this fallen condition, man knew some of the facts about God enough to become responsible. God declares man's responsibility, and since God is God, the maker of all the rules and righteousness, man is responsible whether he wishes to be or not. Now, man is a sinner by nature, and further, he is a sinner by choice. There is no individual who has not deliberately and willfully turned his back on God and righteousness at some time or another, desired nothing more than his own way. A man who has passed through spiritual bankruptcy, who acknowledges the, that anything that comes from him or touches him is thereby contaminated or contaminating, is in a position and qualifies to be cleansed from sin by the atoning work of Christ and to be the recipient of life in God and the life of God. It is to the spiritual bankrupts who have come to Christ that our text is addressed to. We see in 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, it's the born again, by the mercies of God. Now this is appeal to believers only. Now our conclusion must be a double one. Number one, if you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior from sin, you must accept the verdict about your lost condition, acknowledge what God says about you is true, and come to him for salvation and the blessings of his sovereign lordship. And number two, if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and your own personal Savior from sin, you must realize what you were before he lifted you out of that mari pit of sin and pour out your heart to him in a life of thanksgiving. Now, man cannot do anything for himself. So God stepped in and did everything that needed to be done for man. That we see here, all that man can do now is believe God's word. We know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Hebrews 11.1 1 gives a clear definition of what faith is. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, when you study the whole chapter of Hebrews 11, uh, you see through the heroes of the faith, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Rehab, etc., the conclusion of the definition of faith is without doubt, faith is trusting the faithfulness of God's word. That's it. All that man can do is believe God's word. Then the great act of God's redemption through repentance of sin and faith in the completed it is finished work of Christ is immediately transferred out of the theoretical into the experiential living practical life of Christ within the heart of the believer. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, all of the work of God for man's salvation, get this church, passed out of the realm of prophecy and became historical fact. 
God has now had mercy upon us. For anyone to pray, God have mercy on me, is the equivalent of asking him to repeat the sacrifice of Christ. And that is not going to happen. Hebrews 9, 27, 28. And as it appointed for men once to die. But after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So all the mercy that God ever will have on man, he has already had on man when Christ died. That's equivalent like when somebody says, Lord, have mercy on America. He already has. When Christ died on the cross, he's extended that mercy to the world. This is the totality of mercy from God to us. There could not be any more mercy that God could give us than to give us Christ to pay for our sins. We must remember the glorious truth that God is not always theological, technical with, uh, theologically technical with us. When God saved me, I went around using the terminology, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, as if I've got something and I don't understand why I'm so much smarter than you, that you won't do it. Well, upon the spirit of God's sanctifying work and growing me more and more and more in grace through the word, through his word, I came to terms that God accepted me before the foundation of the world and I received the gift that he graciously and mercifully gave. And when he sees, listen church, listen to what I'm saying to you though. When he sees our hearts he saved me even as ignorant as I was. And when he sees us turning away from our, the hope of ourselves and looking to Christ alone, he will take us through the lisping, stammering, mispronunciations of our born-again baby days and bring us on in sanctifying work to grow us more and more Christ-likeness. God can act toward us in grace because he has already had all mercy upon us. The fountain is now opened, uh, flowing, and it, flow, it flows freely, church. We look back at Calvary, and we can sing, Mercy, there was great, and grace was free. Pardon, there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty. Where? At Calvary. And so the third chapter of Romans contains one of the greatest paragraphs in the Bible. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, a sacrifice that satisfied him by his blood through the faith to demonstrate his righteousness. There was a purpose behind it all, to demonstrate his righteousness, his mercy, his glory. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the th sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. 
that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It shows that the mercy of God was planned by God himself and that in the fullness of time it flowed out in Christ's death for us. The important thing for us to realize is that God the Father put the Lord Jesus Christ to death for us. If we do not come to know that it was the Father who put the Son to death, then for, it's all for the uh, appeasement for our sins. We will never have entered into the true understanding of salvation. And oh, it's true that the Jews delivered Christ over to the Gentile authorities for death, but this is relatively unimportant. And it's true that the Gentiles did the actual knelling of the hands and feet of our Lord to the cross. But again, this is relatively unimportant. The important fact about the death of the Savior is to be found in two great passages in the Bible, one in the Old Testament, one in the New. God tells us through Isaiah uh, chapter 53 and verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord God Jehovah to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Now this thought is repeated by Peter as God spoke through him on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him on your midst, in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So, bruised by God the Father, delivered up to death by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, all of these verses reveal to us that God had planned the death of his Son, Jesus Christ planned it even before he created the heavens and the earth. Now, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6 make that plain. It's the work of the triune God, but even here, just the beginning of it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved and all that God has done for uh, all that God has done is for the revelation of his grace in Jesus Christ and to draw an innumerable company of believers into the mold of himself whom he can form into the likeness of Christ reproducing Christ's likeness a million million fold now in the fourth and fifth chapters of Romans the argument is carried along another step the mercies of God have been provided by God without any work on part of man what God has done for man is above and beyond any religious rites, any ceremonies. 
This truth is taught by emphasizing the time element in the history of Abraham. God called Abraham by grace and saved him through faith. God made certain promises to Abraham, and Abraham believed them. They were promises that involved a belief that God was able to bring life out of death. And the mercies of God then included the provision of salvation in Christ and the communication of life to us through Christ, apart from the religious acts. It is by these mercies that God implores us to live Christian lives. And the next of the mercies is set forth in the sixth chapter of Romans, where God tells us that he has joined every believer to Christ, and that everything that is Christ's also becomes ours in him. The comparison that God uses is one that concerns Adam. When God created the first man, all the rest of the human race was also in Adam. Adam was even married to a wife, Eve, who was within him at the very beginning. She was taken by his side by the power of God and transformed into the wife that he needed. Everything that has ever appeared in any members of human race was already in Adam. In his sin, the whole of the human race was separated from God. Now, God says in the same way that all the race was seen to be in Adam, so now all believers are seen to be in Christ. What Christ did on the cross, God sees this to have been done for and by every believer in Christ. When Christ died under the wrath of God, every human being who trusts in the Christ as Lord and Savior is also seen by God to have died under the wrath. When Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, God counted every believer in him to have been raised from the dead also. Everything that God thinks about the Lord Jesus Christ, his beloved son of whom he is well pleased, he also thinks about all believers in Christ. A man may be as low as the Philippian jailer who is described in the book of Acts chapter 16 verse 25 through 40. Such a man on the point of suicide at, at one moment, uh, one moment, but after Hearing God open up the ears and the heart for him to hear uh, the message of the gospel. The next moment finds himself repentant toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, all the way to believers' baptism and received into the body of true believers and is accepted by God as being justified as perfect as Christ in the sight of God. This mercy of God is so great that it's almost inconceivable. There are many Christians who believe, but who do not know all that happened to them when they, tr when they trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. Not understanding the breath of God's mercy, they still linger in doubt. They see in themselves that they are not perfect and find it hard to understand that they, are not, they, uh, that they aren't perfect and they find it hard to understand that they are nevertheless perfect in the sight of God, who looks at them through Jesus Christ. Romans 6, verse 11, Likewise, you also, 
Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thus, we move now to the eighth chapter of Romans, considered by many to be the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. In chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What a mercy is this, church? It is totally impossible for God to bring any condemnation to a believer because all his condemnation was poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. If you ever call my cell, this is the answering you're going to get if I don't answer. It behoove you for me not to answer. It says... For he, God, made him, Christ Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, Christ Jesus. And these then are the mercies of God by which God appeals to us to live as those who are alive from the dead. Romans 12:1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice in Christ, holy in Christ, acceptable to God in Christ, which is your reasonable service, and this is going to happen in Christ. And on the ground of his mercies, he implores us to present ourselves to him. Lamentations. What a great read this morning. Chapter 3, verse 22 through 24. Through the Lord's mercies... In Christ, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness in Christ. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him, in Christ. The whole of Christian living must grow out of our relationship to Christ. Christ giving himself to us through his righteous life, his death, on the cross, his burial, his resurrection becomes the seed from which the whole plant of Christian living must grow. The mercies of God are all found in Christ. There are no mercies of God outside of Jesus Christ. When we have Christ, we have the mercies of God. These are the mercies which must exer- we must exercise as Christians. Such an effect upon us that we turn our hearts back to him and earnestly desire to live unto his glory. Psalm 52.8 says, I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. God's mercy is found only in Christ Jesus our Lord. His mercy will never leave the born again uh, repentant believer. If you're saved by God's sovereign mercy found only in Christ, then mercy will be with you in temptation to keep you from yielding. Christ will be with you. Mercy will be with you in trouble to prevent you from sinking. Christ will be with you in trouble. Mercy will be with you in living to be the light and life of your countenance. Christ will be with you in living. And mercy will be with you in dying to be the joy of your soul when earthly comfort comfort is declining fast. Christ will be with you in dying. 
Psalm 89.1 says, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I want you to know something, church. Christ is not only our mercy. There's a picture in the Old Testament that shows he was our mercy seat. We see in Exodus chapter 25, verse 17 through 22. I won't read the whole thing for sake of time. But we see here, the, he, he, uh, it's uh, God's well-defined blueprint, blueprint of the mercy seat. And it's a picture of Christ. He says here that the mercy seat, uh, he said, You shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Do you get the picture? One here and one here. Then he goes on to say, one cherub at the end and the other at the other end. All right, didn't he just say that? You shall make the cherubim at the two ends. Okay, I, three times he's making it plain. And then he goes on to say, and they shall face one another. Face of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. And then he goes on to say, and I will meet with you, and I will speak with you. Where? Between the two cherubim. And then we see Christ is our mercy seat at the empty tomb. We see Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb. And then here comes John, Peter and John running to the empty tomb. And then the scripture goes on for sake of time in verse 10 says, then the, then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the, by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet whereby the body whereby the body of Jesus was laid he is our mercy seat everything pertaining to god's mercy is in christ and through christ romans 12:1 i beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of god that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy acceptable to god which is your reasonable service? Or some pastor will say spiritual worship, which is it's good. The particular mercy that the Apostle Paul refers to here are, are, are to the believers of whom he's addressing. And in these final chapters, 12 through 16, Paul explains in great detail how believers are to practically live out the rich theological truths of Romans chapters 1 through 11. He had proved that all were by nature under sin, that they had no claim on God, and that he had shown great compassion in giving his son to die for them in this sinful state and in pardoning their sins. This was a ground for reason why they should devote themselves to God. First, Paul says, it is presenting a sacrifice to God. There in Verse 1, uh, you could actually say, it says present your body as a living sacrifice, but it could be this way, present a sacrifice to God. Well, this is the language of worship from the Old Testament. In coming to God, the worshiper brought a sheep or a bull or a pigeon and sacrificed it on the altar as an offering to God. There were different kinds of sacrifices, but at the heart of it was that sin demanded punishment. And the slain animal represented God's merciful willingness to accept a substitute so that the worshiper might live and have an ongoing relationship of forgiveness and joy with God. Though, one of the things all the Old Testament believers knew was Hebrews 10.4, for it is not possible 
that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. They knew they were just being obedient, trusting God's word to do that. They also knew it didn't take away any sins. They pointed beyond themselves to Christ, who was the final sacrifice for sin. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. For indeed, Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. And that was the final sacrifice for sin because it was perfect and sufficient for all who believe. Most clearly of all, Hebrews 10, 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. So Christ brought an end to the Old Testament sacrifices for sin. He finished the great work of atonement. Christ's life, his death, burial and resurrection cannot be improved on. All we can do now is trust him for that great work. We do not take away from it. We do not add to it. And when Paul says that our reasonable service or our spiritual worship is to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, he does not mean that we die to atone for our sins. Let's see what he means by taking the four phrases that he gives and see what each contributes to understanding a lifestyle of reasonable service or spiritual worship. Romans 12.1, present your bodies. First, your bodies. Well, the point here is not to present your, to God your bodies and not your mind or your heart or your spirit. That's not what he's saying. He is going to say very clearly in verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the point is to stress that your body does count. You belong to God, soul and body, and you do not belong to him at all uh, if you don't give him all. Your body matters. Someone might think, why should God or why would God be interested in my body? Well, I gave it some thought. I'm overweight. Shock, church. Well, some are underweight, too tall, too short, wrinkled, blotchy, achy, diseased, impulsive, nervous, unattractive, lazy, awkward, disabled, nearsighted, farsighted, hard of hearing, stiff and brittle, and some all of the above. So what kind of sacrifice is this? The Old Testament demanded a flawless sheep. I do not measure up, but neither do you. But that kind of thinking totally misses the point. The sacrifice of our bodies to God is not a sacrifice for sin. That is done already in the sacrifice of cross at Calvary, uh, Christ at Calvary's cross. Which is why bodies like ours are acceptable to God. Peter says something similar to our text in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's because of the Lord Jesus that our sacrifices to God are acceptable. So put out of your mind any egotistical thought that your body will ever deserve acceptance with God, because it won't. If you're acceptable, it is through Jesus Christ that you're accepted, and through his perfection, not your perfection. But that kind of thinking also misses the point in another way. 
The offering of our bodies is not the offering of our bodily looks. The offering of our bodies then goes a step farther, but our body's behavior. There in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 through 8, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed, but reject profound and old wives' tales, and exercise yourself toward godliness, for bodily exercise profits a little. But godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that is now, that now is, and of the and that which is to come. In the Bible, the body is not significant because of the way it looks. It is significant by the way it acts. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Let me clarify that action. He says in Ephesians 2.10, For we, the born again, are his workmanship, Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, now get this, church. The body is given to us to make visible the beauty of Christ. And Christ, at the hour of his greatest beauty, was repulsive to look at. Isaiah 53, 2 and 3 says, He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. And he was despised and we did not esteem him. The beauty of Christ is the beauty of love, not the beauty of looks. His beauty was the beauty of merciful sacrifice, not skin. God wants visible, lived-out bodily evidence that our lives are built on his mercy. And then we have also the second part. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. An Old Testament sacrifice offering to God was an expression of thanksgiving or homage. It implies that he who offers it, presents it entirely, releases all claim or right to it. He leaves it to be disposed of for the honor of God. And in the case of an animal, it was slain and the blood offered. In the case of any other offering at the, at the first fruits, it was set apart to the service of God. And he who offered it released all claim on it and submitted it to God to be disposed of at his will. Now this is the offering which the Apostle Paul entreats to the Romans here to make. To devote themselves to God as if they had no longer any claim on themselves. To be disposed of by him. To suffer and bear all that he might appoint and to promote his honor in any way which he might command. The Jew offers his sacrificial animal to God. He slays it and presents it dead. It could never be presented again. It's never going to come back to life. But in opposition to this, we are to present ourselves a living sacrifice 
meaning to present ourselves with all our living vital energies, there is something very affecting in the view of such a sacrifice. That now we belong to Him. Now! In regarding life, with all its energies, spiritual life, in Christ Jesus, its intellect, and moral and physical powers as one long sacrifice, one continuous offering unto God presented from day to day until, until life closes, until he, your job here with his work through you is done and he takes you home so that it may be said of every believer that he has lived so that it may be said that he died an offering made freely unto God through Christ Jesus our Lord. His life and his death glorified God. A life of visible, lived out physical actions of mercy might result in the death of a believer. There has always been martyrs. <clears throat> Even today we have martyrs. But that is not what Paul has in mind here. He has in mind a lifestyle. It is here, present your bodies a living sacrifice. It is your living that is the act of worship and reasonable service. Galatians 2.20, listen to Paul. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So let every act of your body and living be an act of worship. That is, let every act of your living body be a demonstration that God is your treasure. Let every act of your living body show that Christ is more precious to you than anything else. Let every act of your living body be a death to all that dishonors Jesus Christ our Lord. Then we come across the third. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy. Well, one of the best, best explanations of holy bodies comes from Romans 6.13. Paul would write, I do not present your members as instruments of righteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. To present a living holy body to God means give your members, your eyes, your tongue, your hands, your feet, give your body to do righteousness, not sin. That's what would make a body holy. Now, here are three examples where the body being used in an, as an instrument of righteousness and mercy is called sacrifice. We see in Philippians 4.18, Indeed, I have all and abound, Paul says, I am full, having received from Ephroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, Paul is saying here in his letter, your work and giving and also the work of Ephroditus, bringing this gift to me is a sacrifice of worship to God. It shows God's worth in your heart. And then we see the second one, Hebrews 13, 15. Therefore, by him, let us continuously offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And when the lips join the heart, in praise to God, the body becomes a holy living sacrifice. In three, Hebrews 13, 16. 
But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. When you do good, knowing that it is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit leading you in the works of Christ, where it is with your mouth, your hands, or your presence, your body becomes a holy, living sacrifice of worship to God. A body becomes a holy sacrifice of worship when it is devoted to God's purpose of righteousness and mercy. Then we see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Then he would go on to say in chapter 2 and verse 24, Christ himself bore our sins in his own body, in his holy body, on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. And by those stripes you were healed. Now listen to this, to get back to that holiness, be holy for I am holy, Leonard Ravenhill said a lot of great quotes. This is probably one of my favorites that he said, quote, the greatest miracle that God does today is to take an unholy man out of an unholy world and make that unholy man holy and put him back into that unholy world and keep him holy in it, unquote. Now, the fourth thing we see here, bringing this down to a close, is, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. Now, acceptable to God. Does this add anything to the word holy? If the sacrifice of our body, our bodily life, is holy, then it is acceptable to God. So what do these words add? Church, they add the name God. They make God explicit. They remind us that the reason holiness matters is because of God. They remind us that all these words are describing an act of worship to God, which is your reasonable service or your spiritual worship, and God is the center of our worship. So it is fitting that we end where we began and stress that before Romans 12 is a call for us to live a merciful life built on the mercy of God in Christ. The aim is that it be a worshipful life. The aim of showing mercy is showing God. The aim of having bodies is to make the glory of God more visible. And God does not shine through our muscles and our curves, but through his sanctifying work to produce in us a merciful behavior, continuously being conformed to the image of Christ. Now, I close with two statements from the Apostle Paul. First, his own testimony of desire. Philippians 1.20, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Second, his exhortation to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit. Listen to this, church. Which are God's. You are not your own. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. 
You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And in the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Verse 3, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Church, when I was stationed in the Army in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, with the 18th Airborne Corps, a soldier in our platoon took leave to go on vacation. Upon returning to Fort Bragg, the soldier was so badly sunburned on his vacation returning to us, he could not perform the military occupational specialty, the MOS, their job. The Army gave the soldier what's called an Article 15, taking half the pay from that soldier over a two-pay period and threatened to remove the soldier's rank, which would have also decreased the paycheck for a lot longer period of time. This soldier did what every enlisted soldier did to enter the United States Army. They spoke to a recruiter, which I have not found one that's not a liar yet. I'm just kidding. There's good recruiters out there. They took a placement exam. They found an Army job, an MOS, Military Occupational Specialty, and they signed a contract. At that very moment, church, no soldier is their own anymore. You belong to the U.S. Army. You are now the property of the United States government. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Church, as chosen soldiers of Jesus Christ, you are being beseeched, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, your spiritual worship. Show the worth of Christ by the way you use your body. May God be glorified. May we as a blood-bought church be a demonstration of his merciful grace to us. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your mercy and grace to us. We would have nothing today outside of you. We pray that knowing this is your word, Father, you'll penetrate the hearts of those you gave ears to hear. And we'll thank you for what you accomplished with it. Maybe even save a soul this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.